Today's Focus on the Family guest is Dr. Ravi Zacharias, and he shares how, as a young, idealistic theology student, he questioned his professor's statement that love is hard work. I said, I don't like your categorization of love as hard work. He says, Zacharias, are you married? I said, no. He said, then shut up and sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. He was right. Well, love and marriage are hard work, and you're going to find out more how relationships stretch us and how God uses that, why they're worth the effort on today's Focus on the Family. Your host is Focus President Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, a great marriage takes some work. Sometimes it takes a lot of work. But the good news is when you involve the Lord in the process, ideally, you know, from the beginning, He can give you a relationship that has the depth, the love, and security that you've always yearned for. I mean, everybody just said, yes. Uh, Today's guest, Ravi Zacharias, has been uh, married for about 45 years now. So he's bringing that experience and wisdom from the Bible to singles in particular. But this is a great message for married couples as well. This is one of uh, the most popular programs Focus has ever aired. And we thought it would be appropriate to present it now as we celebrate our 40th anniversary here at the ministry. And Ravi Zacharias is speaking in this presentation to a group of college students. Let's begin with his message on today's Focus on the Family. Turn with me, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 24, and my message is entitled, I, Isaac, Take You, Rebecca. I'll read for you verses 10 to 27. From Genesis chapter 24. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of goods from his master. He set out for Aram Naharaim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, here it goes now, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son that Milcah bore to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder, as well as room for you to spend the night. 
Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on to the journey to the house of my fathers and my master's relatives. Everything I say tonight hopefully will be worth believing and listening, except for the first two thoughts I want to leave with you, which are not worth believing. They may not even be worth listening to. But seeing there are many young people here, I'd like to share a little bit, a couple of poems that I put together. Uh, please don't bother memorizing them. They will do you no good. This is the way the first goes. As I said, neither of them are true. Love is like an onion. You taste it with delight. But when it's gone, you wonder, whatever made you bite? Love is a funny thing, just like a lizard. It curls up around your heart and then jumps into your gizzard. Love is swell, it's so enticing, it's orange gel, it's strawberry icing, it's chocolate roux, it's roasted goose, it's ham on rye, it's banana pie. Love's all good things without a question. In other words, it's indigestion. <laughs> There's another one that goes this way. Slippery ice, very thin, pretty girl tumbles in, saw a boy on the bank, gave a shriek, then she sank. Boy on hand, heard her shout, jumped right in, pulled her out. Now she's his, very nice, but she had to break the ice. For those of you who don't understand it, I'll see you at the end of the meeting here, right? <laughs> that particular word, love, is probably one of the most used and most abused epithets that mankind has ever conceived in his mind. It has brought peace to many a heart, and the same word, misunderstood and abused, has broken many a life. And here in this first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, which is our roots, it begins with the words, in the beginning God, and ends with the words, so Joseph died and was buried. I find that fascinating. It starts off with God and ends up with man in a coffin. But if you take those first few words, in the beginning God, I think it is Dr. Billy Graham who once said, I have no problem believing that the whale swallowed Jonah. I would have even believed it if Jonah had swallowed the whale. And the mystic A.W. Tozer said, give me Genesis 1.1 and the rest of the Bible poses no problem for me. Once you take the assumption of God, many other deductions for life follow. And here we've got a key narrative of the whole process of how Abraham worried about his entire generation to come, claiming the promise of God, called upon his trusted servant and said, I want you to help me out in this. Would you pursue these instructions and find the woman whom my son Isaac should marry, this chosen seed? Now, you and I will have difficulty living in the western part of the world to understand some of these concepts, but may I try to delineate for you that in principle these hold true whether east or west. Certain infrastructures and patterns may change, but the principles necessarily abide. Here's what happens. He sends Eliezer and moves him in the direction so that he can go and find a, a bride for Isaac. And what I see emerging is something fascinating. Number one, Isaac was not the only one involved in this selection process, and I think that's pivotal. Abraham had prayed, Eliezer was sent, God was concerned, a man laid a fleece before God in that particular setting, and he and in God were and God were in communion, a trusted servant and a devoted father played a vital part in the selection of the bride. Now you and I find that very difficult here.
You see, when you begin dating and get involved in a romance here, we run into many dangerous settings where we get our hearts involved so quickly that our minds are not functioning anymore, and then we end up seeing our parents as interrupters of a relationship rather than as wise ones assisting us to seek the right one. Chances are, if you marry somebody in violation with your parents' will, I suggest you are playing a dangerous game with God. That says, carefully as I probably could state it, just like at any time when you violate an authority that has been placed by God, you need to be twice as sure you are doing the right thing. I just say this very plainly to you, young people. Be immensely careful when you make the pledge of your life to somebody if your parents are not in sympathy with it. Particularly so if your parents are men and women who love God. I want to give you uh, an example of my older brother. He used to be a systems engineer with IBM, so mentally he's all right. He, he's okay. He's really not got any major problem as far as his IQ is concerned. In the uh, 1960s, he came to my father one day. This is my older brother, two years older than me, and uh, always Mr. Conservative. And he came to my father one day and said, you know, Dad, I've always maintained it when we were in India and when I was here, that I'm only going to marry the girl you choose for me. And I guess I am uh, ready now. He was in his mid-twenties. Would you please begin the search for a girl for me to marry? I really didn't believe he'd do that. We were living in Toronto, but uh, here was his personal order now. And my father and mother said, fine, would you sit down and tell us the kind of girl you're looking for? And he gave his uh, biodata sketch and what he was looking for. And uh, normally, the parents would go and travel around and look for somebody. But in this instance, he said, look, you really don't even need to do that. Why don't you just write to your sister in Bombay and let her do the hunting around and we'll correspond back and forth and settle this minor issue. And uh, so he wrote to his, my father wrote to his sister and she finally found the girl and wrote back. There were many letters coming with photographs and vita sheets and so forth. And so he'd sit there at night looking at all these pictures and say, what do you think, Rob? Isn't, that, isn't she nice? Isn't she nice? You know, look at all this description. And he'd read out. And finally, he zeroed in on this one person. And he'd read all about her every evening. Finally started corresponding with her. And then he'd sit down and talk to me about this. He said, look at the description. You know, she's even the church organist, which, as we all know, is so important for a successful marriage. And we read all these things. <laughs> finally, believe it or not, the engagement and the marriage was set with these two never having met. He flew out from Toronto with my father to go to Bombay. The wedding invitations, over a thousand of them, were sent out before they'd even seen each other. Um, I began to get really concerned, and so finally, before he left, I said, I want to ask you just one question. I don't want to challenge anything you're doing. What are you going to do when you arrive in Bombay? And you come down that jetway, that uh, stairway there, and you see a girl standing there with a garland in her hand. And you say to yourself, good grief, you know. I hope that's not her. I hope that's somebody else. Or she looks at you and says, I hope that's not him. I hope that's his brother. Uh, whatever. What are you going to do? Are you going to sort of get on the telephone or write letters to everybody and say, folks, we've met. The wedding's off. The guests were invited before they'd seen each other, and he just kept staring at me, and then he said this, which is what I want to leave with you. He said, are you through? I said, yep. He said, write it down, and don't ever forget it. 
He said, love is as much a question of the will as it is of the emotion, and if you will to love somebody, you can. And the more I think of that statement, the more I think it has not been understood by you and me. You see, I was married in 1972. But one year before I was married, I was uh, sitting in a theological class dealing with Christian education. I don't know what it had to do with the subject, but the professor said, I want you to students to know that love is hard work. And I leaned over to my classmate and said, I don't like that categorization of love as hard work. I said, I wouldn't want to be married to anybody who goes around telling everybody how hard it is to love me. He said, yeah, I agree with you. Why don't you ask him? And like a fool, I did. I stood up and I said, excuse me, sir. I said, I don't like your categorization of love as hard work. He says, Zacharias, are you married? I said, no. He said, then shut up and sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> he was right. It is hard work. You see, folks, the easiest part of our marriage was the wedding ceremony. I, I remember going in there early, and Margie, in right fashion from that day till now, has always been late. And she arrived there. I was standing at the front. And when I saw, turned back to see her coming, it was one of the most ecstatic feelings the human heart could ever endure. There is no word in the English dictionary to describe it, except probably the word, wow. <laughs> and she came up to the front, and your heart was in a flutter the whole time. So much so when the minister tells you to salute the bride out of sheer nervousness, you're on the verge of doing this. Went over for the dinner, the reception, it was grand. At the end of the reception, you know, we went over to Niagara Falls, heading off to Cape Cod, stayed for the night at Michael's Inn. I was thrilled to get up at 2 a.m. and get her a glass of water. <laughs> but five years go by. And you know, somebody has said, rough sacrifice in America is when the electric blanket doesn't work. And you're lying there, tucked in bed, and about two or three, you hear the rustle of the sheets again. She's getting up, and the temptation is to cease to hear at that moment. For at least one reason, she looked different. You see, on that May 6, 1972, she looked grand, absolutely grand. But five years later, she had some funny things in her hair at night. <laughs> which generally prompted one question, what stations are you able to get under that influence, you see? Somehow the first word that leaps to your mind is not the word, wow. <laughs> but you still love because love is stronger than merely the flutter of a heart. If there's one example I have seen in my father-in-law, it is that constant gentlemanly nature that has reinforced this in my mind, the gentleness, the kindness, the affection, and the love. And all I'm saying to you young people is this, don't be deceived by merely the flutter of a heart. For love is an enormous commitment, a commitment that'll test you at some of your most vulnerable areas of spirituality. A commitment that will force you to make choices between some very, very difficult issues that you will be faced with. And a commitment that will force you to deal with your lust, with your greed, and with your pride, and every area of temptation that the Bible really talks about. It demands of you that quality of commitment which Jesus uses as an analogy in his relationship to us. 
Of all the analogies in this world, he takes the relationship of a bridegroom and of all of the categorizations of the church, he takes the loveliest of them all and calls us his bride as he is the bridegroom. And if greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friend, it probably is more difficult to live a life of death than to just die in one moment. And that commitment is a constant dying to self and giving. It is hard work, and that's why, please hear me, when you come to that pivotal moment of decision, my suggestion to you is seek the advice of somebody you love and respect and don't try to do it on your own just because you have the romantic feelings. Get the wisdom of your minister, the wisdom of your parents, the wisdom of friends, and realize that romance has to be transcended by a strong will and a degree of commitment to you. Secondly, not only was the will involved, in the process of selection, Rebecca emerges to me as a lovely woman in her kindness. I don't know if you and I have ever given thought to how much a camel drinks. You know, I'm not sure I would have wanted to give one camel her load of drink for the day. This girl said, I'll give all ten of them. You just relax, sir. I'll not only give you the water, I will take care of your camels too. The sense of chivalry and the sense of kindness that emerges. When one travels and one visits different cultures, you get into different settings, you get into different homes, and one of the things that always leaps out in any relationship if you notice a couple that is unkind in their relationship to each other. And I want to go so far as to say there is never a reason to be unkind. There may be reasons to disagree. There may be reasons to struggle. After all, two wills are merging into one. There are constant compromises and surrenders, but there is never a reason to be unkind. Particularly when you're tempering with the very fragile nature of people's sensitivities. I have prayed constantly that God will so fill our bodies and our minds with his presence that even in some of the difficult moments, if we have to go through them of disagreement, there will never be a reason so strong to force one person to be rude to the other. I like what Chuck Swindoll says in one of his descriptions. It's a magnificent word. He talks about cherishing your partner. There are times in your relationship of husband and wife, and uh, I really don't say this to be ridiculous or funny, but a woman's mind being what it is, there are times she will actually look at you and say to you, I'm feeling down, I'm feeling very, very uh, unhappy, and I really can't even tell you what the reason is. All I know is that I want to be loved. There are times when no amount of talk is what she's looking for, Possibly just the putting of the arm around and that of comfort. And I've had people come into the counseling room and say this to me, that he somehow thinks I'm looking for a long speech or a long explanation or some kind of a propositional solution to the situation. She says, I don't know what's wrong. I don't know why it is wrong. I only want to know that he loves me and that he cares for me. It's that kind of kindness, I think, that is able to walk the second mile. I think Jesus pinpointed this in a different relationship very powerfully. When Jesus was alive, the Roman yoke was heavy upon the Jewish shoulder. 
And the Jews resented the Romans for their power, their dominance, and their bullying of the Jewish people. They wanted a Messiah who would throw off the Roman yoke and do away with it, and do it with tremendously punitive measures upon the Roman um, monarchy there. But Jesus didn't have that idea. And at one point, one of the men came up to Jesus and said something like this, Could you please tell me, there is a law in our land, once that if a Roman soldier comes to me and asks me to carry his heavy arms and ammunition for him, that I as a Jew, by law, am to walk with him one mile and carry this weight for him. Jesus, you are so strong in your wisdom, can you tell me, the next time he comes and asks me, just by virtue of being a Jew, having his right over me to carry his arms and ammunition, what should I do to him? They were really looking for a kind of a punch-in-the-nose answer. Jesus looked and said, the next time he comes and asks you to walk with him one mile, at the end of the one mile, pause and look into his eyes and say to him, Sir, would you mind if I carried the second also? And the counter-perspective of Jesus Christ constantly kept crippling his questioners because he moved love to its deepest recesses, the very recesses of the heart. You see, let me give you a little humor here again. I don't know who wrote it in the United States, but there is an unwritten law in the country that says it is always the responsibility of the man of the house to carry the garbage out. <laughs> Isn't that true, men? I don't know where this idea was born, but wherever you go, it's always the man who's carrying the garbage out. And when I lived in Chicago, going to Trinity, the garbage dump was about 50 yards away from where we lived. And uh, Chicago can get pretty windy and icy. And it didn't matter what the hour was. Every time I went out, my wife would always come to wish me goodbye at the door, which was fine. She'd always come with a bag of garbage. And generally, the eggshells would be carefully placed right on the top. So what do you think? You know, on a Sunday morning, I'm going out, maybe driving 200 miles to preach. What do you do? You know, grab the garbage bag and say, here, give it to me. And go over to the garbage dump and jam it into the drums while the cats and dogs are pouncing all over the place. Get into the car and slam the door and start the engine and squeal the tires and pull out of there. Pull into the church parking lot. Get the praise the Lord syndrome hurriedly on you. Stand behind the pulpit and say, isn't it wonderful to be serving the Lord so willingly? Oh, no, 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 no. You take the garbage bag very gently so you don't hurt either her or the garbage. Take it very, as you slide across that miserable ice, probably whistling everything is beautiful in its own way. Put it into the drum very casually. End of mile one. And then you go back and knock on the door and make sure she doesn't get a coronary now. And say, honey, I still have 10 minutes to go. Would you mind if I helped you with the dishes before I left? <laughs> Love suffers long and is kind. And the Bible says to provoke one another to good works. Young people, this is the moment in your life, please hear me, when he who is wooing you will be at his kindest. And if you do not see that kindness in that person, watch out. For that partnership will be nourished and nurtured on the basis of a love that is not arrogant, but a love that is kind. Dr. Ravi Zacharias on today's Focus on the Family, and you'll hear the rest of his message next time as he shares principles for singles 
based on the story of Isaac and Rebecca's courtship as found in the Bible. Uh, John, I'm so grateful to Ravi for allowing us to air this program over the years, not just this time. Uh, we are celebrating 40 years of ministry here at Focus, and this was one way that we wanted to do that. Um, this is the kind of advice that we don't hear enough of in our culture today. I mean, it's just for whatever reason, we're not getting those nuggets of wisdom as often, I think, as we used to. Uh, many singles are absolutely bombarded by worldly messages that can only lead to heartache and breakup and all the things that Robbie was uh, discussing. Many young people have bought into the lie that physical appearance is more important than moral character. And I'm sure that applies to older adults as well. Um, they may also resist input from their parents or authority figures, and that's kind of that separation process, but it needs to be within a, a healthy context. They may think to themselves that they're in love and they can just run away together and everything's going to work out fine. Uh, but now you've lost that safety net of a caring family who can speak wisdom into your heart. Most tragically, um, people are taught to experiment with all kinds of sexual expression. And Dr. Zacharias will get to that subject and more next time. And because these are such important issues that directly impact how a marriage will fare over the years, uh, Focus on the Family has a whole department dedicated to serving single adults because we want to help you walk closely with the Lord first and foremost and then help you think through the worldview issues that will uh, perhaps even help you have a better definition of family and marriage. Yeah, the Boundless team is dedicated to that very thing, and uh, we've got a podcast, a webzine, and you can learn more at boundless.org. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for listening. I'm John Fuller, inviting you back next time for more wisdom from Ravi Zacharias as we once again help you and your family thrive. If you're dating someone, you might have some folks in your life who would love to give you some advice about that guy or gal you're seeing, and it might especially come from your parents. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, here's Ravi Zacharias with his take. You see, when you begin dating and get involved in a romance here, we run into many dangerous settings where we get our hearts involved so quickly that our minds are not functioning anymore and then we end up seeing our parents as interrupters of a relationship rather than as wise ones assisting us to seek the right one. Well, there's no doubt that making an emotional decision about a lifelong commitment like marriage can be scary and you probably should listen to those people in your life who are trying to give you some wise advice. Well, you'll hear more insights like that on today's Focus on the Family with our host, Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. Uh, John, choosing the person to marry is probably the second most important decision in your life, the first being uh, your decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, and it's one that should be made carefully when you consider the rest of your life is going to be lived with this person. Uh, today's speaker, Ravi Zacharias, is giving you solid guidelines for choosing a spouse. That's a big task. Mm -hmm. And he bases it on the biblical account of Abraham's search for a wife for his son Isaac. Uh, that story is in Genesis 24, where we read that Abraham sent his servant, Eleazar, uh, back to his hometown on that search 
now that might sound really outdated for our generation, you know, going back thousands of years. Uh, but there are biblical principles in this story that are timeless and apply to today, such as uh, involve a trusted adult in the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we heard in the opening clip there, if your parents, pastor, and friends are all warning you that uh, this might not be the best person to marry Uh, You need to hear their advice. That is so hard to do because you're infatuated, Mm -hmm. you're feeling that love, and you think all of a sudden everybody's turning on you and they don't want the best for you. But the reality is they do want the best for you. Uh, And I know the dating process can be emotional. uh, So you do need someone with a clear head in that fog of love to help you assess your situation. Another one is look for a person who is kind. I love that because God's heart is kind. It's really a a character of our creator. Mm -hmm. And if they're not nice now, don't count on the fact that you're going to be able to make them or turn them in to a nice person after you get married. And when you're with someone for 40 or 50 years, and I'm halfway there, Gene and I are 27 years, Um, a daily habit of kindness becomes very important to Mm -hmm. you. Well, that's well said, Jim. And those are the kinds of things that uh, I think influenced me in my decision uh, when it came time to, you know, deciding whether or not Dina was the one for me. And I'm I'm glad to say that there are still a lot of young folks who do welcome that input. They do have that sense of uh, need for input from others. That's called wisdom, and they're opening their heart. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, there's more to come as Ravi Zacharias continues, and uh, he's also compiled these ideas into a book. Yeah, it's called I, Isaac, Take Thee, Rebecca, and we're happy to send a copy to you when you get in touch. As we celebrate 40 years at Focus on the Family, here's Ravi Zacharias speaking to a group of college students, and he begins by recapping his first few points on choosing a spouse from Genesis chapter 24, verses 10 through 27. The selection by an authority other than just himself, the kindness of the person that was being selected, and thirdly, and very pivotally, it says she was pure, she was a virgin, comma, neither had she lain with any man. The reason for that is the Hebrew word for virgin there does not mean biological virginity. It can also be translated a young maiden. But just so that you and I are sure, because it could mean virginity, he punctuates it and says she was a young maiden and was one who had not lain with any man, clearly describing her as a woman who had treated her body as the temple of the living God. That is one of the greatest gifts you can give to your partner that you have respected this body, that you have treated it with all the purity in spite of all of the surroundings of temptation. You have learned to honor this body as a temple that God has given to you. Please listen now. When Moses went to the top of Sinai, he was given detailed directions of how to build a tabernacle so long and no longer, so wide and no wider, so high and no higher. Such and such a color, so many curtain rods, so many curtain rings, such and such a shape, such dimensions. Nobody is to touch such and such except so and so and so and so of the of the tribe of so and so. Everything was meticulously, precisely, in a detailed way given. And just in case Moses missed it, it was repeated in the book of Exodus again. 
The whole dimension is repeated. And I'll tell you why. There are few words sandwiched in the book of Exodus that miss us when we study it. He says, Moses, when you have finished building this tabernacle, exactly as I have told you, there I will meet with you. Now, when you and I build a church, we don't go to Mount Sinai, do we? But I'll tell you where church is now. When we come to the church now, we don't come to the sanctuary. We bring our sanctuaries with us. I firmly believe that in this mortal body, God meets with me. And if I prostitute this, if I squander it in illegitimate, adulterous, vile relationships, if I have wasted away the mandates of God for this body, he cannot meet with me here, for God cannot look upon sin in comfort. Let me give to you a powerful principle, and please forgive me, young people, for being so blunt, but I have covered many, many college campuses in North America. I have done many of them, and I want to say this kindly and honestly before God. Some of our so-called Christian college campuses, some of them, not all of them, obviously, but some of them have sent out young people out of there who are so messed up when they leave. They have messed themselves up in the three to four years while they are there. They went to a Bible college thinking it'll keep them from temptation. They go to a Bible college to find out just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're above temptation. I spoke in one college for five nights. I took my wife, Margie, with me. I was speaking morning and evening. God's my witness in this. I was counseling nonstop through the whole day. I took her with me because I thought we'd have time. In five days, I just had one dinner with her. From morning till night, every young fellow or girl who came, with the exception of one young lad who was seeking the mind of God for missionary work, in five days, sandwiched from morning till night, even my lunch was being eaten while I was talking with kids. Every one of them, except for one, was morally ruined. So hear me carefully. Inside you may mock, but on the outside you'll find out what I'm saying to you is true. There are principles that are very precise here. Malcolm Muggeridge was in India. He was a callous man in terms of his morals. His pen knew no limits. Nothing was sacred for him. And while he was a professor in southern India, Malcolm Muggeridge, by the way, went into India as a religious man, came out of India as an atheist. He went into Russia as an atheist, came out of Russia as a religious man. He goes to India and he's a professor in a southern university. And he had been taught, he'd been raised to indulge the way he wanted to. He says this in his biography. And he says one day he was by the banks of a river, and only Muggeridge can describe this. Please pardon the crass illustration, but it's as powerful as you'll ever hear. He says, way out in the distance at sunrise, I saw the woman in the distance bathing. And finally, I said, well, maybe this is my moment. I've waited long enough. And in the panting of his heart, he gives to me the character of sin. He writes how his heart beat harder and harder and harder because this was his moment of consummation in illegitimacy. He'd fought it for so long. 
And he swims and swims and swims and his mind is feeding him with all the enticement of iniquity, not telling him of all the horrors of it. He's swimming as hard as he can and he paints this appetite that is only getting more and more powerful by the moment he'd kept his control of will for so long till he comes closer and closer, emerges from the water within two feet away of this woman that he'd seen so much in the distance. And he says, in that one solitary moment, I just about gagged, and he says, as I just about threw up with an utter sense of sickness within me, for I was looking at a woman who was a leper. The worn away features, the socketed eyes, the broken fingers, and as he looked at it, Muggeridge says this, I am assuming that as vulgar a man as I was, there was only one powerful way for God to deal with me, to show me what a leprous heart I had. You get into an illicit relationship. Hear me? You get into an illicit relationship, and very soon you will be justifying many other illegitimacies. And it will turn desire into disrespect, if not hatred. Do you want a word of advice, young people, where to stop it? Let me give you two little paragraphs from a man you may think archaic. He was a Methodist preacher, Clovis Chappelle. He talks about the modern dance, and he talks about the modern films. Listen to what he says. Mark you, in saying this, I'm not declaring that every girl who dances is immoral. That is not my prerogative to say so. I am not even declaring that every man who dances is immoral. But what I'm saying is this. Please hear now. The tendency of the modern dance is to take the fine edge off the modesty of both young men and young women. A blacksmith can no more handle the tools of his trade without hardening his hands than a girl can be clasped in the embrace of promiscuous men and still keep her sensitiveness to the questionable and to the unclean. When we consider, therefore, the thousands that are engaging night after night in the modern dances, our wonder is not that so many go wrong, but rather that so many hold their footing upon such slippery places. Listen to what he says about our stage folk in Hollywood, powerfully stated. Take, for example, our stage folk. They are neither better nor worse to begin with than the average. They are just ordinary human beings. But they play at lovemaking so much that it loses all its sacredness. Caresses become cheap and common things to be dispensed to almost any passerby. Such a girl, to use a figure from James Lane Allen, becomes like a bunch or a cluster of grapes above a common path where everybody that passes takes a grape. He who takes so does so without reverence and to his own impoverishment. In the golden coin of real and abiding affection, such spendthrifts soon become utter bankrupts. Where does it all begin? It begins by playing at lovemaking. May I challenge you to abide by a principle, and only you can seek the mind of God in this, but I'll tell you what would be my desire for my children. I cannot control it. By God's grace, I can try and discipline their minds into believing that this is true. Be careful of those moments you spend alone. There was one principle Margie and I had, which was this. We would never, ever be alone without being accessible 
to somebody in either a public or a home setting. So that if we were in her home visiting, we'd be talking in the living room or in my home, whatever, where their parents had access to us, or whether we were in a dining room or a, or a, or a hockey game or whatever it was, it was a principle we abided by before God. We did our best to keep in those public areas so that God could enable us to honor the commitments we'd made to him and were making to each other. Follow what I'm saying. The Apostle Paul says, to make not provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh. May I translate it into saying, do not put yourself in a place where you can fall. All right? Number one, someone else was involved in the choice. Number two, the person involved, kindness was one principle. Number three, there was purity of heart. Number four, there was a readiness and a willingness. Parents, please hear me now. Just as I believe it is wrong for the child to violate the parent's desire in this, I also believe it is important that the parent respects the child's integrity in this and not violate their choice by insisting upon that which the child does not desire. In other words, if the parent, as happens in many parts in my, in my culture, as a matter of fact, right now, if I had the liberty to tell you, a very key person converted in one of our meetings in one of the major countries of this world, a personal secretary to the royal family in that country, right now, has been forcibly violated in her will to marry somebody, although she has committed a life to Christ and the boy has not. And it was only recently, just a few days ago, where an early morning call into our home came with a broken heart that the marriage is everything she knew it would be when marrying outside the will of God. But in that particular culture, the parent forced and insisted, and the girl now sees years of hell ahead of her. She was ready and willing. The relatives looked at Rebecca and said, look, you don't have to go right now. You want to wait? She said, no, I'm ready and willing. And I want to go. One of my favorite stories is this. I've got some very dear friends in the audience tonight who've been to India with us. They will remember some of these instances. When you get married in India, it's a big thing. The bridegroom in the Hindu culture comes on a horse. For that reason alone, I'm glad I'm not a Hindu. I don't think I'd ever want to get onto a horse. You come riding on a horse wearing a red and gold jacket, and you get a bunch of fellows around you who are supposed to be the band. Halfway through, you wish desperately they'd practice. But they're playing as they're going along, and the women carrying the lamps at night, and the bridegroom comes riding into the home of the bride, and he dismounts his horse. He's carrying a sword on the right, it's the symbol of the fact that he's won the right to love this woman, the woman in her beautifully arrayed sari and so on and so forth. And that's the picture that comes into mind as I give you this illustration that really comes out of England. Supposedly a true story. It's a fellow called George in love with a girl called Mary. Mary and George were engaged to be married till George was drafted into the army. And he says, Mary, you wait for me. No point getting married and going to the battlefield. After the war is over, I'll come back and we'll get married. Mary agreed. Many days went by, letters would come, letters would come, letters would come, and then finally the letters stopped coming. One week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, many weeks went by, no letters. Finally, a commanding officer comes and says that George is missing, believed to be dead. This completely breaks Mary's heart. She doesn't know what to do. Many, many days go by, many months go by. She's not able to get this out of her mind. One evening, she comes back from work and says, Mother, I'm really under the weather. Can I go to my room? Please don't disturb me. And she goes into her room and she shuts the door. 
And she gets there, and she takes all of George's letters, and she's reading them, and the tears are running down her face as she thinks of him. Then she decides to bring George's picture, looks at his picture, reads the letters, and the tears are running down the face. Then finally she says, I'm going to make this more real. And for the first time she took out the wedding dress that had long been bought before George had left, puts on the wedding dress, looks into the mirror, looks at the picture, reads the letters, sobbing her heart out. So involved in this ritual, she doesn't hear a knock on the door downstairs. And the mother goes and opens the door and just about falls off. She says, George, what are you doing here? He says, Mother, is Mary home? Yeah, but Georgie, you're, 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 you're supposed to be dead. He says, well, I uh, know I'm all right. I'm all right. Uh, is Mary married? She says, no, but George, what's the matter? He says, Mother, could you please step aside for a moment so I can go and see Mary first? And she says, she's upstairs in her room. And George trots up the stairway, and he looks through the keyhole first. And in England, England, some of the ski holes are so big you can almost walk through them. And he, op- he sees Mary in her marriage address, in a bridal dress there. And he gently opens the door. Her back is to him. And he gently tiptoes towards her, taps her on the shoulder. She turns around in a state of shock and says, Georgie, wraps her arms around him. And I, I can't continue the story. Except to tell you that he loosens one arm, dips into a hip pocket, opens a dog-eared piece of paper, and it says, Mary, dear, of all the letters you wrote to me, this one is the most precious to me. It says this, Georgie, dear, I love you. I love you. I love you. And when you come back, I'll be ready. He said, honey, I didn't know you'd be so ready. And the Bible talks of the return of our blessed Lord, when every eye shall see him. And even the scriptural writers with all of their superlatives are unable to describe this grand scheme. And even our blessed Lord Jesus told his disciples that they weren't able to understand earthly things. How were they going to understand heavenly things? We talk of streets of gold. We talk of gates of pearl. We talk of angels. We talk of seraphims. We talk of cherubims. I'm not sure we understand the grandness of all of that beauty. And I still remember as listening to the soloist in Washington sing at the presidential prayer breakfast. Sing to that marvelous baritone voice, the king is coming. And filling that big grand ballroom with 3,000 people there, resonating through those very walls so that even the president rises up to shake hands with that man. Gives us that glorious glimpse of the coming of our Lord. He is the bridegroom coming for the bride at the time when that bride is ready for him. If marriage is as grand as the Bible intended it to be, then it is worth it waiting until you're ready for that right moment. You go back and you see the choice of someone playing a part. You see the kindness. You see the purity. You see the readiness and willingness. And lastly, when Rebecca came with Eliezer, riding out in the distance, they set their eyes upon Isaac. And as they set their eyes upon Isaac, Rebecca, of course, didn't know who he was. And finally, when she found out that this was to be her husband, The marvelous thing is, the Hebrew is not very clear in this. Scholars are trying desperately to find out precisely what it means. But the idea that seems to be emerging as a consensus is that he was meditating and praying at that time of the day. And of all the principles I leave with you, we have talked so much about our expectation from the partner 
look for kindness, look for purity, and all of that. I want to tie this all together with one single principle that I want you to apply to your own life as I apply it to mine and each one to ourselves. That classic description is the same description given of Joseph, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, where Pharaoh is not intimidated by him because of anything great, but as he begins to study the life of Joseph, Pharaoh is overwhelmed by him. And at one point, he points his finger to Joseph and says to all of his court assistants there, there is nobody in this land like that man, for there is a man in whom the Spirit of God dwells. I would trust any member of my family with Joseph. And the principle that I see here in Isaac, that first thing that they saw was that this man was praying. I want to give you two or three illustrations as we close. I was preaching in Cambodia in 1974. There was a young man there by the name of Daniel Lam, who I believe is somewhere in the United States now. He was a Chinese gentleman in his early 20s. I was just a few years older than him. He became very close as he traveled with me to the city of Barambang and preaching. We would be in this upstairs home, which was very, very meager. We really were struggling to even find half-decent accommodations. The war was ravaging that city. And we had to come home every night at about 7 or 8 when curfew was there, but several nights we would be in dimly lit churches counseling many of the Buddhists who were coming to the Lord. Several hundred had come to the Lord in those 10 days. And this one night, we'd counseled a Buddhist priest who'd been a priest for 18 years. Bun Tan was his name. As Daniel Lam and I had prayed with him till the late hours of the night, and it was a real battle of God against the evil forces. It was such a tremendously emotionally draining thing that when we walked back in darkness to our upstairs room, I figured we were as exhausted as we could ever possibly be in our lives. And I mentioned that because we'd been going for so many days. Every morning, Daniel Lum would do something. At 4 a.m., his alarm would go off. We were sharing the same room. Quietly, he would get up wind his way up the stairs, and he'd get onto the roof of that building, which is just above our room. And then in a language that I did not understand, but a pathos that I think I could understand, he would keep praying and praying and praying that God would bring Cambodia to a national conversion. This night was so late, we'd lost so much of sleep. So finally, in the early hours of the morning, when he got up again, I couldn't believe it. Short while later, when I got up, had my own devotions, got ready as we were walking to the church. I said, Daniel, weren't you too tired to wake up this morning? And he said, Brother, I was too tired, but if ever I needed to be on prayer on my knees, that was the morning I needed to, because we just wrestled with a man for whom the devil was wrestling. There's one principle in my life that I try not to violate. It is that time alone with God every day. Every day. I study four chapters every day, two from the old and two from the new, follow the teaching of Robert Murray McShane, and bathe my soul in the Word of God. And young people, we can talk all we want about dating and all we want about romance, but as I close tonight, I'm asking you this. Are you willing to be a man and a woman 
who is a man or a woman of prayer, so that as you are deeply devoted to God, he will reveal to you that partner of your life and make you to be the person God wants you to be. That is the first step. Let me just make this quotation and then pray. Marriage means handing over yourself, your body, your future, your keeping to the one whom you dearly love. Although this person may in many ways remain a stranger, this tremendous act of faith is something that can unlock in each lover powers of compassion, generosity, joy, passion, fidelity, and hope that no one guessed was even there. That is why the confidence of young lovers is not foolish or arrogant, but an expression of a basic fact in human experience that the greatest of human gifts are set to work only when people are prepared to risk everything. And first, you risk it before God. Let us pray. Father, what a grand privilege you've given to us in love. And Lord, I'm fully aware that maybe for some that relationship may never come to be. And you give strength and wisdom and love in our loneliness. Lord, as dearly as we seek you, we know that you want us to first commit ourselves personally in the inner man. Before I give you an invitation, While your heads are bowed in prayer, I want you to listen to three principles and then respond. To single young people, here's my first principle. Keep yourself pure for your future partner and learn to be ruthless with the approaches to sin. To people living in an adulterous relationship, make up your mind to break it right now despite all the pain it might cause you. To married people, work at your marriage and set an example to the many young people who come from broken homes and have no model. While you're in a posture of prayer, maybe some of you tonight are willing to say, Ravi, I've made some mistakes and tonight I want to start all over again and I know God will forgive me. Please pray for me. Some of you are willing to say, Ravi, I need to become that person of prayer and a godly man and a godly woman to keep that as a priority before my relationship. Some of you are willing to say, Ravi, I'm living in that wrong relationship, living in sin before God. I want tonight to break that or break those habits. Please pray for me. If God has really spoken to you tonight, give me a chance to please pray for you and if you Give us the chance we'd like to pray with you. Father, thank you. And I pray that you will do something that will be deep and lasting for eternity. Give us the courage and the strength to stand up for what we believe. For Lord, what we believe is in you and you are worth taking a stand for. Thank you for being with us tonight and speaking through your Holy Spirit in Christ's name. Amen. And with that, we come to the end of a powerful two-part presentation from Dr. Ravi Zacharias as he shared biblical principles on what to look for in a mate on Focus on the Family.
This was such an excellent message from Dr. Zacharias. I appreciate so much of who he is. He's mm. such a thinker and philosopher, yet uh, delivering a powerful message on how to pick a mate, something so basic as that. I hope you got a lot out of it, whether you're single or married. And uh, I know I did. Uh, the last time we aired this presentation, we received a comment that I want to read because it really sums it up. Uh, this person said, I've been married for almost 20 years, and sometimes I still don't understand my wife's needs. Uh, but after hearing your program, I just went home and gave her a big hug. And that wiped away a whole week's worth of frustration for both of us. Thank you for airing this reminder of what marriage should look like. Uh, John, that's powerful. It is, and it uh, reflects, I think, on what Ravi said about expressing kindness in a relationship and then cherishing your spouse. I mean, really valuing them highly. Mm. And you know what? We want to be here for you and your marriage and in seeking a mate. If Focus on the Family can answer questions or provide resources to help you strengthen your marriage or get you ready for marriage, don't hesitate to call us. Man, it's our privilege to do that and to stand in the gap. And uh, we want to be there for you. And we also have great resources like Boundless. I mean, that uh, podcast and webzine is an excellent resource for singles. It is. If you're single, Boundless is a great place to go. It's really aimed at 20 and early 30-somethings to talk about the issues of family formation and how do you go about choosing a, a mate that uh, has the godly principles and the godly character that we've talked about today. Um, if you could consider partnering with us so that we can continue uh, to bring this kind of programming to people that desperately need it, we certainly would appreciate it. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for listening today. I'm John Fuller inviting you back to the next Focus on the Family program as we once again help you and your family thrive. 